This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Uh, the usual budget battles continuing in Lansing this week. I'll just mention a couple of other things first. Uh, in the 10th Congressional District, that's over in Michigan's Thumb area and Macomb County, finally the Republicans look like they have a bona fide top tier candidate. He is Shane Hernandez, a second term state representative, age 37, married and father of two chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, a very important job, as I think everybody knows, particularly at this time. He announced he will give up running for re-election to a third term in the State House, and he will run for the Republican nomination in the 10th Congressional District for the right to succeed if he wins the general election after winning a primary next year. Paul Mitchell, a two-term congressman who shocked the world this summer by saying uh, he's fed up with Washington after only two terms. It's dysfunctional. Uh, He can't get anything done, and he's leaving Congress. So the seat is open. It's considered a Republican seat, probably 55% base Republican. And There's been a lot of back and forth between a bunch of possible Republican candidates, but nobody announced until yesterday. Shane Hernandez, chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, second-term state representative, said he is running. I would say at this point he's the favorite. There's at least one other candidate who might get in the race, and it's not State Senator Pete Lucido. He could get in, but it doesn't look likely. Um, who could run, and uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, Also this week, there were comments from one Peter Lucido, whom I just mentioned, state senator, uh, who is chairman of the kind of advice and consent committee over in the Senate, which flyspecks gubernatorial appointments to various state boards and commissions, often overlooked by the general public and the news media, And in fact, in the past, uh, a couple of governors, uh, Jim Blanchard back in the 80s and uh, even Jennifer Granholm in this century uh, between 2003 and 2010 uh, didn't fill all the spots that they could have on these boards and commissions. And they left their successors with a lot of appointments to make. And the question is, coming in, Gretchen Whitmer, how is she going to take hold of the appointment process? Is she going to be efficient, like, let's say, John Engler was, in making sure uh, these boards and commissions are filled with nominees and appointees and not leaving vacancies uh, lingering on through their terms and perhaps after the end of their terms in office? And the answer so far has been really pretty good from Gretchen Whitmer. According to Peter Lucido, he's saying, I've had 19 hearings so far this year on 23 appointees. Uh, The Senate Republican majority has not uh, cast any kind of negative votes on any of these nominees. And the 
governor has been very efficient in filling vacancies. So I guess that's good news. Uh, We'll see what happens going forward if she keeps it up. And so far, so good. Now, back to the big story in the capital city of Lansing, and that is the budget. Um, Both parties, and when I say parties, in this case, I'm going to say the party of the first part is Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the party of the second part, not necessarily in that order of importance. The Michigan legislature, controlled by the Republicans in the House and Senate, they both came forward with a list of uh, supplemental appropriations to restore in whole or in part many of the line item vetoes that Governor Whitmer issued uh, about 10 days ago, which shocked everybody because of their number, uh, sheer number, 147 line item vetoes totaling some $950 million in state spending and uh, shuffling around over $600 million in various department budgets uh, in a direction that the legislature did not give her. In other words, she contended, and a court decision has upheld a right to do this, that she can shift money around sent to her by the legislature within state departments. She can't transfer the money out of those state department budgets into other departments, but she can move the money around within a department, and she did that at least in her transfer uh, announcement that she made uh, earlier, I'm not going to say this week, it was last week, um, and that caused as much consternation among legislators and among the news media and the general public who pay attention to this sort of thing as anything because it really says that the governor is seizing a lot of power and authority that governors have never really exercised or tried to exercise in the previous 180 years of Michigan government, dating back to 1837. This hasn't really ever happened before. And so the legislature is, I think, eager to reassert itself as an appropriator and uh, to rein in the governor from being able to exercise the kind of authority she exhibited last week when she made these intra-departmental transfers. Now, what was in the appropriation supplemental bills that were introduced this week? Well, one, uh, I'm not going to call it package because I think there were only one bill, maybe two bills, I think, introduced by Democratic State Senator Curtis Hertel Jr. of Ingham County, uh, the Lansing area, uh, who is the ranking Democrat on the Senate Appropriations Committee. He introduced $475 million in supplemental spending restoration, uh, including uh, $100 million that would go into the state's rainy day fund. This is on behalf of the governor. So in other words, the governor gave Curtis Hertel a list of things that she is willing to accept back from the legislature uh, that she vetoed just 10 days ago. She's saying, if the legislature sends me this stuff, 
uh, I will sign it, or at least that's the signal she's giving out. What she really hopes for is that the Republican leaders, uh, Mike Shirky, the state Senate majority leader, and Lee Chatfield, the Speaker of the House, will sit down with her and negotiate on the whole budget that she got where she exercised all these vetoes, 147 of them, and did these intra-departmental transfers. She wants to have a, a rehash, a redo of the whole thing and see what they come up with. So her proposition to the legislature to launch things this week was this $475 million in restoration introduced by Senator Hertel. Now, for their part, the Republicans have already introduced some, uh, I think, 47 bills, uh, and, and maybe up to 49 now this week. They've done it piecemeal, department by department, line item by line item, uh, amounting to $265 million in restoration of cuts. So that's less than the governor is asking back. Uh, the Senate and House Republicans so far are saying, we in these bills will be willing to send back to the governor if we can get these through the legislature again, which they should be able to do, $265 million. So we'll see what happens. The governor and the two leaders met Thursday, and they say they're going to meet again Tuesday. They imposed a cone of silence on their meeting. No details, but they said they think some progress was made. We'll find out next week. Back in a minute with our first guest, who is going to talk about his new book. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have got a great guest here. Uh, He is Dr. Matt Grossman. And he is an associate professor at Michigan State University. He is also director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at the university. He's got a long list of academic affiliations and credentials. Uh, I was intrigued because uh, he has been, and he can tell us right now, host of a podcast, The Science of Politics. Um, Can you tell me, Professor Grossman, are you still doing that? And welcome to The Political Insider. Uh, good to be with you. Yes, uh, the Science of Politics is released every uh, two weeks um, by the Niskanen Center in, in Washington, D.C., and I'm the host, and I interview two uh, political scientists to try to apply research to current topics in, in American politics. Wow. I, I got to catch that. I didn't even know about it. I'm, you know, very apologetic. <laughs> that <laughs> no I haven't, I haven't taken advantage, but I will. <laughs> Uh, let's turn to the subject we've actually got you on for, and that is your new book. It's called Red State Blues. And um, I guess I should say, as Republicans have gained more power and control in Congress over the last 25 years, uh, Democratic lawmakers and constituents alike thought that maybe the uh, very conservative policies uh, might be enacted and have an adverse effect on the nation's economy, environment, social issues, and foreign policy. And in Red State Blues, uh, Dr. Grossman, our guest, uh, discusses what he found after closely tracking how the Republican 
resurgence uh, influenced policy and socioeconomic factors across all 50 states. And apparently what he found was that while Republicans have successfully maintained power, they have not substantially altered the nature or reach of government. So, Dr. Grossman, let me just open with this question. What made you want to take a closer look at how or if Republicans and Democrats really moved the needle across the country at a state level? Well, I had done much of my uh, research on, on federal policymaking where I had found um, that, that Republicans uh, had trouble actually reducing the, the size and scope of government. And people kept saying, well, what about uh, at the state level? What about Scott Walker? What about Sam Brownback? Um, and so that's one reason I wanted to look. And then the other is that I have uh, sort of an institutional role in, in Michigan here at a time when um, we, we, I started with uh, unified Republican control uh, and got to see that uh, up close. Uh, uh, and so I uh, wanted to see, you know, how, how unique our experience was relative to other states. Well, which states have been more influenced by Republican leaders? What kind of policies changed at a state level if they did? Well, the, the states that, that where you saw the most change were states like Wisconsin, um, where policy was already to the left of public opinion in that state, and so there was some room for uh, Republicans to, to push back. Um, having said that, you know, Wisconsin still, by, by most measures, has, has economic and, and social policies that are to the left of the, the national median uh, state. Uh, so they weren't able to completely transform it, but they made more uh, change there than a state like, you know, Alabama or Oklahoma, where they came to power at a time when the state was already relatively conservative in its policies. And then in terms of what policies change, Wisconsin's also another good example there, as we've seen in Michigan. Uh, they made a lot of changes in um, uh, affecting unions, for example, um, with right to work and uh, prevailing wage uh, changes. Um, they made less changes when it came to, to things like the, the overall size of the state budget. Is that pretty much true of what has changed nationally? Uh, yes, uh, they they tend to have uh, more success in social issue policies. Uh, so abortion and gun laws have changed in every state, um, and less success uh, when it came to kind of basic things about where we're spending money and, and where we're getting our our tax revenue from. Um, and then the other piece of the book that I look at is is the effects of those policies, and that's where you get into uh, the the quandary, which is that the places where they were most able to pass policies, like on guns and abortion, it's actually harder to show effects of those uh, policies on even things like the abortion rate and the gun ownership rate in states uh, don't change, you know, appreciably uh, when those kinds of policies change. Well, what has not changed because of the Republican revolution that Republicans would have wanted to change, you would think, when they went into office, into control, into power, and yet haven't apparently been able to change? Well, I think the, the starkest indicator is, you know, Republicans went from controlling only three states in 1992 to controlling 26 states completely last year. And over that time period, uh, the, the median state budget doubled. So, uh, and, and it is increasingly spent on education, health, and social services, the kinds of priorities that you expect Democrats to have more than Republicans. So some of that is federal influence. Some of that is just uh, some natural tendencies for government to, to grow in size and scope over time. Um, but it but it certainly doesn't seem like Republicans were able to to um, to reduce the size and scope of government. What are the greatest challenges that Republican leaders have faced throughout the last two and a half decades when it comes to pushing their political agendas? 
Well, first I'd say that uh, leaders in both parties, um, you know, face more challenges in governing than it, than it sounds like um, they're going to be able to achieve on the campaign trail. So overall, researchers find that when a new party comes to power, they're able to, to move policy about 1% in the direction of their ideal point as opposed to the other parties. So, you know, that's real change, but it isn't anything like what's kind of announced on, on the campaign trail as a, as a complete transformation of government. Um, but then Republicans face additional um, difficulties, which is that, especially in this effort to, to kind of rein in uh, the size of, of government, they face a whole bunch of constituencies who are happy with their current uh, services and want them expanded, uh, if anything, rather than reduced. Uh, they also tend to fo- uh, face um, uh, bureaucracies and uh, courts uh, that are to the left of uh, Republican state legislators uh, and tend to, to put pressure uh, to expand. Um, and then they uh, have often, it's hard to gain power in both the states and the federal government at once in the United States. So uh, they tend to have uh, made the most gains in 1994 and 2010 when they were facing uh, Democratic uh, presidents. And so they, they came to power at a time when the federal government was increasing incentives uh, for uh, liberal policies. Um, and then the final uh, factor is, you know, the social issues uh, tend to be an uphill battle uh, for, for conservatives uh, worldwide. Um, that there's, you know, some issues where we come to kind of a standstill, like on abortion, uh, but then you get to things like gay rights and, and drug policy, where there's just uh, general liberalizing trends in public opinion. What would you say about the situation in Michigan over time, over, let's say, these last 25 years? You mentioned 1992. John Engler was the governor. Uh, You had, at that point, a a divided legislature. Um, Then we come to Jennifer Granholm, a Democrat, uh, between 2003, 2010. Then we have Rick Snyder, a Republican, for the next eight years, and now we've got a Democrat again. Uh, Republicans have controlled the state Senate all that time in Michigan. Uh, The House has gone back and forth a little bit. Republicans have had it most of the time. Has that moved the needle one way or the other over those 25 years? Has it gone back and forth? Well, certainly policy has changed, but what I try to do is separate out things that, that politics are responsible for versus other factors. So, of course, the, you know, the general direction of the economy and population growth um, matter to things like the state budget, and we've certainly been an outlier uh, on, on both of those um, nationally. Um, and so trends you know, in, in revenue often follow from those uh, indicators rather than, than politics. Um, but I think it's useful to, to think about, um, to say, what happened under Snyder. We had uh, Republican control. Um, and well, that, let's uh, hold let's hold that thought yeah. right now because we got to take a short break. No we got problem. so much to talk about. We'll come back and pick up on that. Back in a minute. You're listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Professor Matt Grossman. He's uh, associate director professor at Michigan State University. He is the director of the Institute for uh, Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State, very highly regarded program, and he is the author of his latest book. He's written a bunch of books and a bunch of scholarly essays. Um, This book is entitled Red State Blues, and Dr. Grossman was just telling us when we had to take a break about the situation in Michigan, whether uh, Republican control, which was in existence for eight straight years between 2010 and the end of 2018, 
You had a Republican governor, Rick Snyder. You had both chambers of the legislature controlled by Republicans. Has that moved the needle uh, in the direction of Republicans over these last eight years? So I think uh, you, you certainly had some uh, conservative successes that were mirrored in other states, like the right-to-work uh, law passage, um, but you also had some unexpected uh, liberal moves in public policy responsive to events like uh, the bailout of, of Detroit schools and uh, city, uh, the uh, uh, changes uh, uh, to some of the budget situation was was moved in a conservative direction, some some in a liberal direction, some tax increases, some tax cuts. So uh, it, it was a somewhat of a mixed picture. Um, and you also had these uh, kinds of nationwide trends that that Rick Snyder picked up, like uh, expansions of early childhood education, um, which were bipartisan, um, but but certainly uh, expanded the the size and, and role of, of government um, over time. So uh, I think it was a, a pretty good example of what's kind of achievable and, and what isn't uh, in, in Republican politics nationwide. Yeah, one of the things that came to my mind um, in looking at this book, Red State Blues, is uh, it appears Republicans obviously did not achieve anywhere near what they hope to achieve when they seize power in these various state governments uh, after all the campaign promises they made to get elected. But, you know, if you're a Republican or a conservative, I mean, your mantra really basically is stop the lurch to the left that they felt was going on in America back in 1992 and over the last 25 years. And so for Republicans, isn't it a victory, even if they don't really change things much, they at least slow down, if not stop, the drift to the left that they saw with Democratic governors and Democratic-controlled legislatures up through, let's say, 1992 before Republicans started to turn things back. Well, there is uh, some uh, sense that they they reduced, say, the the role of, of the size of government as a percentage of the state's economy by a very small amount um, compared to, to democratic uh, democratically controlled states. Um, but there's also just these these broader overtime trends, which are mainly that the size of state governments expanded dramatically in the 60s and 70s, didn't expand as much in the in the 80s, went back to kind of expanding over time in the 90s and uh, 2000s, um, then, then had a, a crash with the Great Recession. So some of that is more responsive to, to economics um, uh, than it is uh, to politics. Um, but yes, there's a, there's a definitely an argument that, that Republicans uh, slowed uh, the growth of government uh, to, to some extent. Uh, Medicaid expansion, though, is a, is a good example where you know, at the at the on the one hand, fourteen states, um, largely Republican controlled, have not expanded Medicaid. On the other hand, that means thirty six states have have nearly doubled the size of their largest uh, program um, in response to federal incentives um, at a time of increasing Republican control of state government. So, including us. So that was <laughs> so that was a, a, you could say that slowed um, uh, the growth relative to where it had been. But um, you know, the the trends were still were still leftward. Well, what surprised you most in your research for the book? What surprised me most was just the limited impact overall of all these policies combined on uh, socioeconomic indicators. So, so we're always arguing as if, say, we're trading off between 
economic growth and reducing inequality or uh, social freedom and, and too much social change. Um, and we really think that, okay, we're, we're dealing with, are we going to be more like Texas or are we going to be more like California? Um, but the data just don't bear out um, that these changes in, in state government partisanship really affect those underlying indicators. Um, there are some individual policies like right to work where you can say, okay, that it had this effect, um, but the effects are usually smaller than anticipated, and, you know, the policies are not implemented widely enough for there to be a stark difference between Republican and democratically controlled states on economic and social indicators. Well, if Democrats' past fears were overblown, what would be a time or a sign that Democrats maybe should be worried in the future? Well, I think they should be worried electorally in the state, certainly, because um, some of this change, uh, you know, shifts back and forth. Uh, They just had a great year in 2018, uh, obviously, but some of it is very long-term. The South is not going to be competitive for Democrats. Uh, States like the Dakotas and beyond the South, like uh, Oklahoma and Missouri, uh, you really saw very permanent, likely permanent changes in the electoral competitiveness of those states uh, in the last three decades. Um, and I don't think, um, you know, they're, they're going to make those gains back. Uh, in terms of policies, I think what what you're seeing is that um, the, the normal course of government is kind of incremental expansion. Um, so if you're kind of a moderate to liberal uh, Democrat, then uh, you're in pretty good shape uh, um, in, in, in getting your policies uh, adopted. But if you are more like on the Bernie side and you're trying to um, transition states to, say, a different health care system or a wide-scale environmental policy, you tend to run up against the same constraints as Republicans. <laughs> you, have, you get the local interest groups against you. Um, you get uh, too much change all at once and the backlash that, that comes with that. We are talking to Dr. Matt Grossman. He is author of the new book, Red State Blues. He is the Director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University. Let me ask you, Dr. Grossman, at the end of the day, what should the public take from your book, Red State Blues, about the contentious opposing political parties? Well, it's just that not not as much is at stake in policy uh, terms or in the the socioeconomic structure of the state in the partisan competition as it looks like in political campaigns. So, uh, the governors are going to get out. Gubernatorial candidates are going to get up there and they're going to say, you know, policy is going to completely change under me. And you just have to to say, well, historically, it's only changed about one percent of the way between you two um, when when we've made this decision. And then they're all also going to say that, you know, whatever is proposed by the other party is going to have these huge uh, social and economic effects, and you have to take that with a, a great deal of salt because uh, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we just don't see uh, the large-scale impacts of, of the policies that, that are prophesied by their proponents or their opponents. Well, keying off what you just said, and also here in Michigan and talking about campaign rhetoric, uh, what about Gretchen Whitmer's promise to Fix the damn roads and what that's led us to right here in Michigan right now. Where do you see this going? 
Yeah, well, interestingly, if 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 we were to to cut it off right now, we'd say, well, there's you know, under a, a Democratic governor, we passed one bill, uh, one major bill, the auto insurance reform that was more uh, favored by Republicans, and we have a state budget that's a billion dollars lower. <laughs> now, I don't think that's how it will end up, um, but it is a it is a nice sign that um, you know you don't automatically see the the change uh, in policy just from from one governor uh, to to the next. Well, and also, uh, this is an unfolding drama, as you know. And, I mean, we're speaking today. God knows what we're going to be talking about a week from now or a month from now or at the end of the year. Uh, But where do you see this going? I mean, it takes time for any kind of change to occur in state government. And as you have pointed out, it's really very minuscule change in one direction or another over time. And we're only, you know, nine months into Gretchen Whitmer's first term as governor. It is, but historically, that's the opportunity. That's the best opportunity to kind of uh, put uh, bolder changes uh, on the table. Um, that doesn't mean that that we won't see a change down the line, especially if, if Democrats were to make gains in the legislature. Um, but but it is a sign, I think, that it's it's very hard to translate uh, the, the proposals on the campaign trail to to policy that that's actually going to pass the legislature. That was. Dr. Matt Grossman, he is the author of the new book, Red State Blues, and he was our guest today. Very insightful commentary. Thank you very much, Matt Grossman. Good to talk with you. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and on the other line, we have got Bruce Timmons. Uh, He has been watching what's going on and participating in what's going on in Michigan government and politics since the mid-1960s. Bruce Timmons, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Bruce, I hate to uh, date him here, but you'd never know it. He sounds so young when he talks, Uh, (laughs) but... He graduated from Kalamazoo College back in 1964. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. He saw legislative service uh, signed to the House Judiciary Committee beginning back in 1967. Uh, He's been the legal counsel or assistant House Majority Counsel over time. Uh, In 2013, he retired, he claims. I don't really think he's retired. I think he's uh, making commentary and observing everything going on and maybe in a freer way than he was able to when he was employed by state government. But he retired after a 45-year law career with the Michigan legislature, and uh, all but 21 months of that was in the House of Representatives. I just want to ask you, Bruce Timmons, um, have you seen anything uh, in the past over time quite like the budget situation that we've uh, gotten ourselves into here in Michigan. Is this, are we making too much of what's been going on here in the last two weeks that this is, you know, unprecedented, unusual, uh, some, it looks like insoluble. What do you think? Well, in my experience, going back about 50 years, this is totally different. There have certainly been budget impasses of different durations and for different reasons over a period of time. But, uh, I don't recall anything that was quite as manufactured as this one was on both sides. Well, I mean, one of the claims that I'm hearing is that 
this is really the first time that a legislature has sent to the governor a budget that is, quote, unnegotiated, unquote. In other words, uh, there were talks between Gretchen Whitmer after she revealed her budget back in March of this year and the legislative leaders who were Lee Chatfield, Speaker of the House, and Mike Shirky, Senate Majority Leader, over the summer, much of the time with the legislature in recess. But they led to the point where in late September, uh, and we could talk about this forever, but we won't. We'll just say that everything broke down. The governor apparently pretty much abandoned uh, talking to Uh, the legislative leaders, and they turned around and with Republican majorities in both the House and Senate, uh, even though they got a lot of cooperation and bipartisan support from Democratic legislators on some bills like K-12 public education, uh, they sent her a budget in a sense that had not been all ironed out in advance. Uh, It hadn't been agreed to by the governor and the legislature before they actually sent her all the bills. Uh, in late September on the eve of the start of the fiscal year on October 1st. Well, now, is that really as unprecedented as everybody is claiming, or have there been times in the past that you can think of when the legislature sent whoever was the governor of either party a budget that had not been largely or entirely agreed to in advance by the governor? I I can't remember any situation comparable to what is and transpiring uh, in the last several months. Uh, in the past, while there were impasses, it was still at the stage before the legislature sent appropriations to the governor. In other words, there were times where they didn't meet the deadline, whether it was uh, originally uh, July 1 or uh, a couple instances even after the change to October 1. Uh, but they were still talking and negotiating. They had, didn't send bills to the governor until there was an agreement as to um, what the targets were. Uh, and then... Um, Spending the bills. Now, there was not always a full agreement on all those, but substantially there was. And that was worked out beforehand. There were several times we didn't get a vacation break in the summer because the budget was still unresolved and we were still around. Um, I remember one time, I, the only reason I got a vacation is I found out when they were going to work on the, the voting machine, so I knew when I could take a vacation. <laughs> um, but otherwise, we were stuck there. And the legislature was there, the governor was around, and they were talking uh, through the summer trying to iron this out. They didn't take a two-month hiatus. I think it's blame on both sides of this thing. Uh, to wind up then uh, confronting the governor on just a few days' notice of what was actually in the budget. And the fact that they actually, the uh, legislature then was trying to talk to the governor, and the governor's folks were not able, were not allowed to talk to him. So, I mean, it's just communications that broke down wholesale. Yeah, I think back in 2009, supposedly in late September of that year, um, Mike Bishop, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, and Andy Dillon, who was the Speaker of the House, they got together and did send some budget appropriation bills to Governor Granholm that had not been agreed upon uh, and negotiated, but most of the budget was. Do you remember that, anything about that, anything comparable to what's going on now? Not specifically in there. With ironies, you would have had a bipartisan uh, budget. Yeah, we had a Republican and Democrat, which right. is a little unusual. I know there were times uh, Dillon was accused of working more with Republicans than with the governor. Uh, but they produce something, and uh, that's, when communications break down, you get that kind of situation. But nothing comparable to what we've got right now. Yeah. Nothing. Well, um, 
how do you think the legislature is likely to react and how do you think they should react? I mean, in other words, there are a whole bunch of things they could do. They could try to override some of these vetoes. Um, but then you've got this situation where if they override a veto, uh, the governor has already demonstrated that she is willing to transfer money within departments. She did that to the tune of over $600 million uh, just 10 days ago, uh, in addition to all her vetoes and budget cuts, she actually took a lot of the money the legislature sent her and said, well, within these various departments, uh, I'm not going to spend the money the way you want me to. And the Supreme Court back in 1993 said uh, in response to a suit that had been filed by the Democrats against Republican Governor John Engler, the governor has the right to do this. And so, I mean, this sets an incredible precedent, um, the decision back in 1993, and Gretchen Whitmer took advantage of this to the fullest extent, uh, and she could just take money that is supposed to be spent on something else, according to the legislature, and maybe move it back into the uh, programs that, you know, she wants, even if the legislature overrides some of her vetoes. I suspect, first of all, the bills have been introduced now, I think, on both sides of this equation right. to try to address some of the supplementals. Uh, some, like, if you take a look at it, some are understandable, some are bizarre in the sense that they, there's still stuff missing from it. Um, it was a little unusual that the governor, in her vetoes, uh, struck out money that didn't affect, didn't save much of the general fund. It actually cut programs that were funded by restricted revenue. Right. Absolutely. That I think that's a point you have made in the last week or so. You've said uh, she actually vetoed line item restricted revenue in addition to general fund revenue. How? Yeah. What, yeah. what? To the general public, what does that really mean? Uh, well, it's part of the uh, shell game that gets played on the appropriations and the budget uh, by all sides. Well, I mean, what is a specific? Give me an example of a specific line item that she vetoed. Well, what was the, the uh, um, secondary road patrol? Like the sheriff's department. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that affects counties like here in Ingham County, which has a large rural area. Um, it affected that's a Democratic county, Democratic sheriff. He's going to have to lay off people if this money doesn't get restored. Now, it is included in one of the supplemental bills. I think it may have been the hotel bill. Um, and, and just to the extent of the restricted revenue. Um, there's other uh, – one of the things he did is uh, he targeted some uh, strange things like autism, um, the um, prisoner reimbursement she struck out of the corrections budget, that's money that the county sheriffs depend upon. Uh, one can argue um, whether it was a good cause or a good formula, um, but the counties have depended on it, and to cut it off is one of the reasons why counties particularly have problems making deals with the state where the state promises, well, we're going to pay you, and then they back off and don't do it. Yeah, I think there are four items that, apparently Republican legislators agree with Democrats on in terms of the bills they've introduced this week to try and correct what Gretchen Whitmer did. Uh, four of them, one is like $38 million in critical access hospital rate increases. Another is uh, $1 million for, as you have mentioned, the Autism Navigator Program. Another is $14 million for Veterans Services Grants and $13 million in Secondary Road Patrol, which you've just talked about. I think yeah, the one bill, the one bill just has the eleven million of the restricted revenue and didn't include the general fund portion. Right. 
Well, listen, it's a complicated situation. You've given a good overview of what it's been like historically and what it's been like is nothing like what it's like right now. Well, right? the big thing is trust. Trust. This is really devastated trust. It's going to take trust before you're going to get something through the legislature to the governor, and they're going to have to agree to it and stick to it. Yeah, because they're going to introduce a new budget next year, right? Pass yep. more bills. So yep. What does it do to the process then? Well, listen, this is Bruce Timmons, veteran observer, longtime employee of the Michigan legislature. Thank you so much, Bruce Timmons, for your commentary. Thank you. Glad to be of help. Thanks. That's all.